Well, friends, let me invite you now to take your Bibles and to turn over to Genesis chapter 3, where we'll be in the first few verses of that chapter for the next bit of our time together this morning. Genesis chapter 3, especially going to be looking at verses 1 to 6 today. I'm sure I'm not the only one who has been glued to images uh, from this war in Ukraine over the last couple of weeks. One of the things that struck me about these images and these news reports that I keep reading as I'm also preparing to preach sermons in a series on what it means to be human is how right there in that one microcosm you get the full gamut of what the Bible has to say to us about who we are. On the one hand, you get images of immense and unbelievable glory. Last week I read about a guy in his 20s, I think it was, who got his family to safety in western Ukraine and returned to the thick of the fighting to try to help other people through his local church find their way to safety too. And while he was leading a young family across a busy street full of other evacuees, was struck by shrapnel from a mortar and killed. That is glorious. There's something of God's love on display in that action. But there was a human behind whatever switch got flipped to send that bomb in the first place, too. I've been struck by images of the beauty of this ancient city in Kiev. Some of the architecture in that city is just stunning. Humans came up with that. The glory of how God made us on display in the stones and the carvings and the designs in these amazing buildings. And right now, some of these same buildings are being reduced to rubble. Humans are behind those bombs too. Or even just think of the military technologies that are in play. And there's a reason that kids are obsessed with tanks and jet planes. They're amazing. The technology involved in making that thing fly. I, I, it's just, it, it's beyond me. I don't even understand it. But, but humans figured that out and made that happen. There's a creative power in our species that you won't find anywhere else in the world. God put that into us. And yet it's, it's humans who have designed, using their capacities for creativity and power, have designed technologies to be used to destroy other humans. The whole gamut right here in microcosm. The glory and the misery of what it means to be human. We've spent the first couple of months of this series in Genesis 1 to 3 on what it means to be human, talking about humans as God has designed them. I mean, the, first, the first sermons were intentionally about celebrating how God made us because it's just amazing. There is nothing like humanity in all of this world. And God did that on purpose. As his highest creation, made in his image, he established humans for his glory. And it's right that we've spent the first two months of this series just taking a careful and slow walk through that teaching. Because humans are absolutely amazing. We ought to be paying attention to that. But, no account of what it means to be human could possibly be complete without looking at the misery of humanity as well. Because our great capacity, a capacity God gave uniquely to us, aimed at the wrong ends, well, it becomes, all of a sudden, it becomes destructive power. 
destructive not just to our world and not just to one another, but to our own selves. To understand what it means to be human, we have to talk about sin. We have to talk about where it comes from. We have to talk about what it leads to. And we have to talk about what God has done to account for it. And that's what we're going to do from here on for the remainder of this series on what it means to be human. Beginning this morning. This morning we're going to start with the beginning of chapter 3. Where the, the beautiful and wonderful story of creation takes a sad and dangerous turn. We'll begin with, with where sin comes from. And that's what I want to especially focus on in these first six verses. The next sermons, we'll, we'll, we'll look at where sin goes, what it leads to, the carnage that falls from it. But we want to understand sin as a phenomenon that's not just like built into this story, but built into our own hearts and our own experience of ourselves in this world. That's our plan for today, to look at the root of evil. I want to begin by reading Genesis 1 to, uh, 3, 1 to 6. I want to ask you to stand with me if you're able. In honor of God's word, I'm going to pick up in Genesis 3, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. For almost all of our time together this morning, I want, to, I want to focus on these first six verses and describe to you big point number one, the inhuman anatomy of sin. The inhuman anatomy of sin. What does sin look like? Where does sin come from? One of the most striking things about this passage is that barely any attention falls on the act of disobedience itself. By the time the act happens, it just gets its own little phrase. Nearly all the focus in this story stays on what led to that disobedience in the first place. This is an internal account of sin, a kind of psychological account. It's about the roots of it in the human heart. Because behind anything that we actually end up doing there is a decision on the inside of us to put ourselves in God's place rather than trusting him to be God. Underneath every act of disobedience is at least a threefold statement about God and ourselves. Underneath every act of disobedience, here we go with the inhuman anatomy of sin, there's at least a threefold statement about God and ourselves 
Here's statement number one. Sin says, I can't trust God's word. Sin says, I can't trust God's word. To, to get the significance of what happens first in this story, you've got to back up a little bit for some context in Genesis chapter 2. God has created humanity in his image as male and female at the pinnacle of his good world that he's made. And he's established through his image a special relationship with them that he doesn't have with anything else in his world. He's given them special responsibilities in his world to represent his rule and to rest in his goodness and his provision, to reflect his character like little mirrors or pictures of what he's like. That's what it means that God has made man and woman in his image. And the unique place of humanity before God becomes the most clear in verses 15 and 17 of chapter 2. God puts the first man in a garden that he's made special for him. He's filled that garden up with good food, the food he promised he'd give them in chapter 1, verse 29. All of it is at his disposal except for one tree. Look at chapter 2, verse 16 with me. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's no rationale given for this command. God doesn't explain why that tree is off limits in a way that none of the other trees are. In a way, his command seems a little bit arbitrary, doesn't it? But, but actually, that's part of the point. God is giving Adam a choice. Will you trust your maker with boundaries he sets for you? Will you trust him as your God? Adam, as human, gets a choice no other part of God's world received. Everything else that God made heard his word and and obeyed immediately. He said, let there be light. There was light. He separated the land and the darkness. The land and the the water, the land and the water separate. He said, "Let let the earth sprout up vegetation and boom, plants pop up. He speaks, he is heard and obeyed by every part of his good world. But to humans, he gives them a choice. Will you regard me as your maker? Will you trust me as your God? And so the stage is set. Now enter the serpent. More crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord had made, verse 1 tells us in chapter 3. Whatever the reason for a serpent in this story, whoever may be at work in what happens next, I want to zero in now on what's going on in the story. This back and forth between Eve and the serpent. Because it's in this back and forth that we get remarkable insight into the heart of sin. The serpent's challenge begins with a seed of doubt planted about the word of God. Did you see that? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Do you see what he's doing there? I mean, for one thing, he's exaggerating the command that God had given them to make it seem way more restrictive than it really is. No, God didn't actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. He actually said, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. That's the quote. Every tree but the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The emphasis is on every tree. 
Here's a garden full of trees that I've given you. I am feeding you. You don't even have to do anything but reach up and take. All but this one tree. And the serpent only notes that restriction and throws it open like that's all that God had said. The serpent reminds me here of a kid at Disney World who's complaining that his mama won't let him have any fun because she won't buy him the $20 Coca-Cola. Well, you're at Disney World. You, you just got off the Space Mountain ride and you're complaining that you never have any fun because you don't get the Coke. He's exaggerating the command and that's no accident because he's going to take it to an even deeper level. The problem is not just that he's exaggerating this command. The problem, oh, it's deeper than that. I I believe what he's really doing is calling into question whether God's word even makes sense at all. I want you to hear it like this. Did God actually say? Really? Seriously? Why in the world would God say that? Does that make sense to you, Eve? Eve? What could possibly be the harm in eating fruit from a fruit tree? That's what's behind this statement. Did God actually say you shouldn't eat? That's subtle, friends, but it is so, so powerful. To this point in the story, nothing could be more reasonable than trusting the word of the maker of heaven and earth. The only one who gives life in the first place. The one who made everything good. The one who just gave and gave and gave and gave food to everything that has breath. When that God sets a boundary, there is nothing more reasonable in the world than to trust it. It makes far more sense than to doubt it. And to this point in the story, no one and nothing has questioned that life-giving word. God spoke and it was so on repeat. That's how chapter 1 unfolds. God spoke And it was so, and it was good. He spoke, it was so, it was good. And we are meant, in other words, everything we've seen so far is meant to prepare us for the shock we should feel now when for the first time someone in God's world has questioned God's word. The fact that the serpent is looking for a whole lot more than clarity about what God really meant becomes crystal clear in how he responds to Eve in verse 4. Eve corrects the serpents for his exaggeration. She fills in what was missing, including the stark warning God had given. Don't touch it, don't eat it, rather, God had said, or you'll die. And in verse 4, for the first time in history, the word of the Lord is flatly directly rejected. The Lord had said in chapter 2, you will surely die. The serpent says in verse 4, you will not surely die. Translation, that's ridiculous. No way God would take your life over something like this. That makes no sense. Friends, do you see what's shifted here? From from God defines what makes sense to me to what makes sense to me defines whether God's word is worth trusting. You see, now for the serpent, I'm supposed to be the standard. I obey or I don't obey based on what seems right to me. Do you see that this is a direct challenge to the authority of a creator over all of his creatures? 
It's subverting the place that we started in this series in Genesis 1-1, where in the beginning, there's God, and then by his free decision, surely because he wanted to, there are the heavens and the earth that he made. I, I want to I go a little further here. Before we move to the next step in this progression, I want to ask you to reflect for just a minute on where you might have the most trouble accepting a boundary God sets in his word. Just for a second, let's go here together. Are there places where God's rules don't make sense to you? Where you can't understand why they're good? Or maybe even stronger than that, are there places where his rules just frankly don't seem right to you? Maybe this one isn't your issue in particular, but, but from the very beginning, the Bible's teaching about sexuality has been hard for many people to understand. In the ancient world, just as surely as today. We talked about this some last week. That's why this example's on my mind. For, for some throughout that time, the logic involved hasn't made any sense. I mean, think about it. Your own Bible claims that God rules over the whole universe, that he's named every single star, that he's put those stars exactly where he wants them to be and he knows right where they are, that entire nations are to this God like dust on a scale. But you're telling me he has time to worry over what consenting adults do in the privacy of their own bedrooms? Why? Why would he care? And who cares whether those consenting adults are married or whether they're of the same gender? If they want to have sex, what's the harm? Where's the victim? And for many, again, from the very beginning until today, the boundaries the, the Bible places around sexuality seem more like taboos, more like relics of some other time than, than, than like useful guardrails. They don't always make sense. I wonder where the rules that God has given in his word don't make sense to you. And I want to ask you, how do you think you should respond when you encounter a rule, a boundary, that doesn't seem right? I want to give you three suggestions of how you should respond when that happens. Suggestion number one is, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when you feel a disconnect between your gut and God's word. Because if the Bible is what it claims to be, if the Bible is a word from God, the God of the universe, the God who exists above time and place, a God who just isn't limited by the blinders that affect every single culture everywhere, if that's true, if this Bible is from that kind of God, then of course every culture and every time and every place is going to have some things about God's word that don't sit right. Because God's word isn't a product of any time and place. It doesn't belong perfectly or align completely with any culture and any time and place. If it really is God's word, then, then it can't be reduced to what seems right to any specific person. So you shouldn't be surprised when some things about the Bible don't make sense or seem right to you on a gut, gut level. Uh, and in fact, friends, that, that's just the cost of having a real relationship with someone. I love an analogy that Tim Keller uses for this phenomenon in his book, The Reason for God. He talks about that movie, The Stepford Wives. You guys know this one? I think maybe it's had like two or three different iterations by this point. But it's a movie about a community uh, where... All the guys, the men, decide that they want wives that never question them, that always do exactly what they want, that look exactly as they want them to, and so they create basically robot wives to lots of comedic effect. It's sort of a dark comedy, but it's meant to be funny. 
because it's a disaster, right? It's not real. There are no genuine relationships when what you've got is a robot coded specifically and exactly to your desires and interests. It's empty. It's a shell of what a marriage is supposed to be. And Keller uses this analogy to say, could it be that that what you really want, what you're tempted to want anyway, is a Stepford God? A God who, who doesn't contradict you, who never says no, who never has another idea about what is good or right or best than what you already have inside your head? What, do, you don't, do you really want a God that's just a reflection of you rather than the other way around? You don't. That's not a real relationship. And it's certainly not the God of the Bible. Don't be surprised when sometimes the rules that the Bible includes don't sit right or make sense immediately to you. And second, don't be afraid to talk about it with your friends in our church when that happens. This experience is unavoidable. Our understanding is limited. Our perspectives and our intuitions, they get shaped by a whole bunch of factors all around us that we can't always see, that we don't always know are affecting us the way that they are. And our growth as Christians is going to come through wrestling with gaps between where we are in our minds and our hearts and our lives and what we see in the Bible. Our growth as Christians comes through wrestling when we experience those gaps. And we have to have each other to do that well, to make the progress we need to make. We need to be straightforward and honest in talking about questions with our friends and our pastors in the church. But finally, number three, third suggestion when you run into this gap between what God says in his word and what seems right to you, you can't be content with that disconnect. You've got to be willing to talk about it with your friends. Don't be afraid. But don't be content with it either. Friends, our goal for ourselves and our friendships in Christ has to be trust and obedience. Our starting place in our relationships here within our church is a conviction that, that our creator has spoken to us. That it isn't our place to evaluate him, but our place to, to be evaluated by him and guided by him ultimately. Where we don't understand his rules, we try to understand them better. Where we don't like his rules, we work and we pray for a change of heart. And in our life together as a local church, through our friendships that God has given us, what we want is to be a people of the word, a people who are just always going back to the Bible, back to the Bible, back to the Bible, over and over, to see what it says, to understand why it says what it does where we can, and to submit to it, especially where that feels hard for us to do. The alternative to a posture like that one, where our goal is to work to submit well, it's bleak. And we see that in the next step of our passage. Sin says, I can't trust God's word. Then sin says, I can't trust God's character. Not just I can't trust God's word, but I can't trust God. In verse 5, the challenge of the serpent to God's word escalates. Look back to the text with me. He's already challenged the word directly. You will not surely die. What he said isn't true. And now verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened 
and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see his point? This rule makes no sense. There's no way this rule is good for you. So why would he give you this rule if it isn't reasonable and it isn't good? There's only one explanation left. He must want to hold you back. He doesn't want to keep you from evil. He wants to keep you from reaching your full potential, from reaching that next level, from reaching his level. For the serpent, God's rules are not about protecting Adam and Eve. They're about God protecting God's position. He's not just questioning his words here. He's questioning God's motives. And behind his motives, he's questioning his character. Friends, if the first challenge of the serpent, if it comes at God's authority as the maker of heaven and earth, think about this this challenge coming at his love and goodness and the goodness of his design for his world. In the early sermons in this series, we laid out the foundations for what it means to be human. We said it it means knowing that God created us, not the other way around. That that means God has the right to define us, not the other way around. But that we don't have to worry about that. It's not a threat to us because God created this world not to exploit it as a resource, not because he needed anything from us, but just because he's love. And he loves to give and give and give. And what he gave to us is a world that is good at every step. We talked about the goodness of God as the driving theme of a whole chapter, chapter one. His designs are driven by love and good for his world. That's the foundation for what the Bible teaches us about what it means to be human. Do you see the serpent chipping away at that foundation? Bit by bit by bit, he chips away at it. Sin comes in as a challenge to God's authority. Is he really fit to rule? Does he know what he's talking about? Sin comes in as a challenge to his goodness. Does he really want what is best for his world? Is what he says and does very good? Does he mean to do good to you? And this leads us to the final stage in the progression. If I can't trust God's word, that's step number one. If I can't trust God's character, step number two. Well, then finally, sin says... I'll be better off on my own. I'll be better off on my own. Can't trust his word. Can't trust his character. Every man for himself. Better for me if I take his place, if I become like God rather than rest in his image. Look at Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, And that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Once again, friends, come here with me. You see what the author is doing. One phrase captures the action. She took of its fruit and ate. The focus here 
It's not on the action itself, but on what's going on inside of Eve, in her eyes and in her heart, on the way to what she and her husband ultimately do. She saw that it was good for food and a delight to the eyes. Here's something I'll enjoy. She desired to be made wise in her heart. She thought, here's something that'll make me better, that'll get me further ahead, that'll take me to the next level, my full potential. Before, in, her, in, in this world, her compass for knowing what to be and, and where to go, it was God's word about God's world. Here, her compass is her own gut and her own goals. What seems good to her, for her, guides her actions. Sin in all the Bible is like this. It's a curving inward, away from God and His authority, away from God's goodness and towards what seems best to me for me. And if you can't trust God's word and you can't trust God's character, if you can't trust His authority and you can't trust His goodness, it makes sense. You'll have to fend for yourself. And that's the progression underneath all sin. I'm not suggesting we think about it like this. Like you work through these steps every time you decide to disobey God. Of course not. It isn't like that. We don't rationalize it this way. But in our hearts, just like in Eve's, this is where sin comes from. And this is what sin always amounts to. Every single time it amounts to this. To replacing God on the throne of our lives. As if we know better what's good for us. As if we're more committed than he is to what's good for us. So we take control. Now this is a series on what it means to be human. Why am I giving so much attention to these few verses? Friends, it's it's because this story right here is the first example of a claim that has been around ever since. And it's certainly powerful today. The claim that for you to be fully human, for you to reach your full potential, you've actually got to reject your humanity and be like God instead. The key to full humanity is rejecting your humanity and grasping at God's divinity. One of the best written and best selling examples of this perspective that I have in mind is a book mentioned that I mentioned a couple of weeks back, maybe a couple of months ago now, in this series. It's a runaway smash hit memoir called Untamed by the author and speaker Glennon Doyle. This book is a phenomenon. I mean, it's, it's shattered all sorts of sales records, it seems like. Nearly 50,000 reviews on Amazon to date, still a bestseller two years after its release. Here's the publisher's summary of this book, which speaks to its power, its resonance for people today. For many years, Glennon Doyle denied her own discontent. Then, while speaking at a conference, she looked at a woman across the room and fell instantly in love. Three words flooded her mind There she is. At first, Glennon assumed these words came to her from on high. But she soon realized that they'd come to her from within. This was her own voice. The one she'd buried beneath decades of numbing addictions, cultural conditioning, and institutional allegiances. This was the voice of the girl she had been before the world told her who to be. Glennon decided to quit abandoning herself and to instead abandon the world's expectations of her. 
She quit being good so she could be free. She quit pleasing and started living. And not long after the book came out, Doyle was interviewed by the Guardian newspaper for more on where she's coming from in the book and what she's hoping to accomplish by the book. She said in that interview that that she sees all around her people who are kind of where she was. People are everywhere in change, she said. But they can free themselves. They could if they would. Just by realizing they can think outside the box. Or as she puts it, they can order their lives off the menu. My sexuality, she writes. My faith, my working life, my views about gender, my mothering, my daughtering. I have to go off menu with all of these. In all these areas of my life, I have to go off the menu to find what fits for me. Now, on one hand... Doyle is calling out cultural expectations, boundaries other people or other institutions might put around her or around you, telling you who to be. And she's right that no one else out there has a right to tell any of us who we are. They're not God. They don't get to do that. And a lot of times, there are external influences trying to constrain us or shape us in a way that's not healthy that ought to be rejected because they don't have the authority. But, but for her, there's one choice to be made. Do I listen to what everyone else tells me I am or do I listen to who I tell me that I am? And there's someone, the someone, missing. What if the source of your life, the one who gave it to you as a good gift from his good and gracious heart, what if that one has spoken to tell you who you are and what a fully human life looks like? And then imagine that you're speaking back to him, not just to the cultural powers that be then I wonder if this reasoning right here sounds familiar to you guys. He comes straight out of the garden. Did God really say? Aren't these rules really just chains holding you back from becoming what you could become? A truer and a better version of you? Uh, What if you go off menu instead? Eat from this tree and not these other ones. On this way of thinking, Eve was brave. She did the brave thing. She chose herself against all those outsized forces that just wanted to hold her back. It's the same story. And it's not just Eve's story. It's not just Glennon Doyle's story. Friends, in one way or another, it's our story. However compelling that narrative might sound to you, it's in you. And that's the tragedy of what it means to be human. Now, on this side of the garden, ordering off the menu turns out to be literally a devil's bargain because it leaves us exposed and fragile. It sheds all kinds of chaos into our lives. And and we're going to talk a lot about that the next time, about some of the tragic results that flow from this shift away from trust in the godness of God and towards trust in my own view of what's best. For now, for now, I want to leave you with some good news before we go deeper into the bad news. I mentioned at the very beginning, we're going to spend almost all of our time together this morning on the big point number one, the inhuman anatomy of sin. These verses help us to see where sin comes from, what it looks like underneath the surface, so that we can see it's, it's really inhuman. It's rejecting who God has made us to be. Now, we gather every week around the hope of the gospel. And it's that hope I want to leave you with. Not just the inhuman anatomy of sin, but the healing hope of the gospel. 
That's the second big point that I want to drive home in just a few minutes. We gather every week around the hope of the gospel. The hope that sin doesn't have the last word in our relationship with God. And even though the few verses we looked at this morning from Genesis 3, they only have bad news. Another way to read them is as just a fantastic preparation for the good news that I want to leave you with. The gospel offers every one of us a restoration of the gift of being human. A human that depends on the grace and goodness of a life-giving God for everything. And I think it helps us to see and, and, and in this morning even to experience the healing hope of the gospel. If we work back through the same three steps that we took in verses 1 to 6 of Genesis 3. But in reverse in the light of the gospel and what God has done for us in Christ. Here's how the gospel heals us in our sin. It starts with an honest confession. Number one, I am not better off on my own. In fact, me being God has made a mess of my life. The first step is honesty about where my sin and my selfishness has gotten me. It's gotten me nowhere good. Me doing what seems best to me, me doing whatever was right in my own eyes, that offends God. That hurts others. And that leaves me miserable. Trying to be God is a disaster. And healing begins with honesty about that. Friends, Christianity is only for sinners. There are no winners here. There are no entrance requirements that you've got to make up before you can have a place in this community, in this people. The only entrance requirement, I guess, is that you need to say it's not just everyone else who has a problem. I have a problem that I need help with. I need a savior who can offer help beyond me. This, these days, people are used to accepting that, that, that there are problems out there. And we're kind of past the point where everyone thinks sin is no big deal. Social media is full of people calling out other people's sins. Everybody's got a problem out there. <laughs> but Christianity says, no, 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 I'm the problem. It starts with me knowing I made a mess of my life. Last weekend, we were praying in our Sunday evening service about the, uh, the situation in Ukraine. One of the things that we asked to pray for is that God would humble those who have made the decision to, to enter this aggressive war. Russian leaders who have power, that God would, would convict them of pride and show them themselves and change their hearts. Grady Hester prayed over that for us last week. And he prayed, something about his prayer really struck me. At some point in his prayer, he was praying that the Lord would do this work of heart change. And he prayed to the Lord, Lord, something like, I know you did that in my heart. And if you can do that for me, you can do that for anybody. If you humble me, you can humble them. That's a Christian prayer. That's how a Christian sees things. Everybody is fallen. That means I am fallen. And if I'm redeemable, well, everybody else is too, which takes me to the next step. I am not better off on my own. That's step number one in the healing power of the gospel. Step number two is I can trust God's character. I can trust this good and loving God. The healing power of the gospel meets us in our honesty about our sin with the news that God's mercy and grace are steadfast, even for sinners like us. Adam and Eve, they had plenty of reason to trust God's goodness that his boundaries weren't meant to hold them back. They lived in God's good world on breath they didn't even ask for, that they just received from him freely. They lived surrounded by food that he provided in bodies that he designed. And all that was because God is just not a stingy God. He loves to give. They should have known better than to doubt his goodness 
We should have too. But we, are, we now have a reason to trust his goodness that they could not have even imagined. The stunning, almost unthinkable news of the gospel is that God responded to our rejection of him by giving even more grace to us. He responded by our rejection of him by giving more grace to us. Who would do that? God so loved the world, John 3.16 tells us, that he gave up his only son. And the Son of God became one of us. As a man, Jesus faced temptation just like Adam and Eve faced, just like you and I have faced. The tempter came to him not in a garden of plenty surrounded by all the food he could possibly want, but out in a wilderness where he had no food and hadn't had any food for a long time. Came to him when he was weak and hungry and alone. But do you know what he said when he was tempted to take something for himself? Man shall not live on bread alone, he said. Matthew 4, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus did not question God's word as we have. He fed on it and fell back on it every single time. He did not give in. And that means he did not deserve to die. And still, while we were still sinners... Christ died for us, for us who doubted his goodness in the first place. He died to absorb the death we deserved for our sin. And he did that because his father sent him to do just that. 1 John 4, 10. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do Do you see what we can take from this? We can trust his character because he did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all. And if we're not better off on our own, and if we can trust his character after all, then of course we can trust his word too. Even when we don't understand his words, even when at first glance his words may not seem right to us, we can be confident that a God who didn't spare his own son is not looking to ruin our lives now. A loving God who has given so much for me must have a really good reason to say no to me. He clearly cares for me. Obviously, he's not stingy. And on top of it all, he's God. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He would know what I don't know about what's best for me. Friends, do you see This gospel has healing hope in it. This gospel sets us free to be human again, to accept what he's told us, to accept the rules that he's given us, whether we understand them or not, because he made me and he takes care of me, because he is God, a good God, and I am one of his creatures. Would you pray with me now that the Lord will bring this healing hope to our hearts, even right this minute? Father, We look to you, the maker of heaven and earth and the God whose love is unlike anything else in this whole world, steadfast, immovable, and so full of grace. We turn to you with the mess we have made of our lives and ask you to help us to trust that you love us still, that your ways are good, 
and that there is a hope beyond our sin offered even to sinners like us. A hope we can build on. A hope that is living and active. We need this hope this morning. Would you give it to us? Would you encourage us even now as we sing in response to this word? We pray in the name of Jesus, amen.